0: Any of my opinions or statements are basically my own. They don't necessarily reflect that of the corporation I work for. That said, my name's Jay Prane. I am a principal penetration tester for Oracle. So I'm an ethical hacker.
1: Cool. Now that's something we definitely want to talk about. So let's start at a high level. What the hell is ethical hacking?
0: (laughs) Ethical hacking is, well, it's legal hacking. (laughs) Basically, it's a core part of software development these days, as you well know. In the lifecycle of code, as we add new features and functions to codes and applications, websites and services, we have to monitor how well we're doing on security. And the best way to do that, besides using automated tools, is to have people actually hacking into the system and seeing if they can find vulnerabilities, seeing if what they can find out about the system. Sometimes we're doing it from the perspective of a black hat, which would be with no pre-knowledge, or sometimes from a white hat, where we have all kinds of inside information. Or then also a grey hat, which is a combination of the two.
1: Okay, well, let's go into that then. So perhaps describe for the listeners what the different types of hats are that you can wear. What is a white, grey, and a black hat?
0: Well, it kind of goes back to the cowboy movies of old. The black hats are usually replicating the actions of a bad guy or a malicious actor. And a lot of the stuff you'd be doing if you didn't have permission would be illegal and you could be prosecuted for it. It's also that side of it and the coming at it without a team giving you help. You know, like when you're working with a development team, Mm -hmm. you have the ability to ask for all kinds of information and to try to move things along quickly because you're on a timeline. You need to be able to get to certain levels of access. So that's more in the line of like a white hat Mm. where you're actually a good guy, you're there trying to do the various things that a black hat or malicious attacker would do, but with the full cooperation of the development team and you know the company that you're working with. So an ethical hacking is that side of it where you're you're working with the teams very closely. And then in White Hat, we also, I mean, it's not only finding vulnerabilities, it's actually interacting and working with the development teams to remediate and fix the issues that they find. So once they think they've fixed something, then you go back in and you try to validate it. And it's kind of a continuous cycle. And so that really comes from cowboy
1: movies and white and black hat. Is that a theme? That's Yeah,
0: I'm assuming (laughs) red hat. Oh, okay. That's going to come more from film noir, I think. (laughs) It's just the style of
2: hat, you know, but.
1: I'm going to have to go and look up these hats now. I never really thought about it. Yeah.
2: That's my take on it. I suppose it makes sense.
1: It does. Yeah. I'm wondering whether we're going to be able to go back and research it and find that that's the case for like all the old John Wayne movies and before that, I guess.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I think you can look at just the term hacking itself. Mm originally hacking is not a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, anybody who codes, especially when I'm trying to do it, I'm basically slamming my head against the wall over and over and over again until something works or just hitting compile. No, compile, no, compile. and then it finally works. And you're like, oh, it's like Christmas. <laughs> For me, that's what hacking is. And then over time, the media and stuff have taken the term and turned it into something negative, which I guess what we really are talking about when we're talking about malicious is cracking, mm. you know, doing you know illegal activity. Hacking is something that people do all the time, you know. It could be something in the way you do your home maintenance or the way you fix your car. You know, it's just various ways of figuring out how to get something done might not necessarily be the way that it was intended to be done, but it works.
1: Yeah. And I think this is the thing that they actually don't really tell you when you're starting to get into coding, that that is how you will be coding. You will be hitting your head against a brick wall until eventually it finally works.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not that painful. I mean, it's, Some things are. <laughs> um, yeah. It can be like that.
1: So how do you actually go about doing some of this work then? Do you use any particular tools? I mean, how would you get going on it?
0: Should I talk a little bit about my background and how I got to where I am? Because I started out Back in the early 90s, as just a sysadmin. Mm-hmm. I worked for a small charity in London called Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture. Wow. They had five computers, and I was hired on to take care of a Novell server. And my wife was working there in marketing. And she said, Yeah, we're looking for a guy to do computing. And like, can you do that? And luckily, my father was a sociologist, so we had computers around the house in the seventies mm. and stuff. So I grew up around computers and I said, well, I don't know anything about Novell, but I'll I'll get a book and I'll read up on it. So I got a book about Novell servers and I read up on it and I didn't have a Novell server. So I wrote a script in basic that simulated the functions that I was supposed to do to go through and set basic tasks. And I just did that for a couple of weeks Learning how the thing worked with a book on how it worked, but not ever having a server. And then when I went in for the interview, nobody there. I mean, the Medical Foundation was lawyers and doctors and psychiatrists, and you know, they didn't know anything about Novell either. So they liked me. I liked them, and that's where I started. And when I left there, right before I left to Love Film, the size of the network had grown to over 350 computers over four sites spread across the UK. Wow. I kind of learned the trade through the growth of of this small charity. So that's kind of where I got started. And I've always been on the hands-on side. Hmm. One of the first tasks I did is they wanted eight more computers. And I thought, well, it's a charity. We don't want to spend a lot of money. I could build them. So so I went out and I bought all the cases and all the motherboards and all the processors and all the hard drives and (laughs) all the OSs and built them from scratch. I saved the company a considerable amount of money, but I built them. I had to support them. Yeah. And when they didn't work, it was my fault they didn't work. And that's kind of how I got into it.
1: But I guess this is in the 90s as well, when it was more cost effective, probably, to roll your own rather than going out and buying one.
0: Oh, yeah. 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 This is back in the days of Windows 3.1, you know. Oh, classic.
1: I love 3.1.
0: Very simple stuff.
1: My first operating system. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And then very early on, I got into Linux. Mm. We didn't have email or websites when I first started. So I got tasked with setting up the first website, setting up the first email server. And I was trying to get an email server to work on Windows, and I couldn't. Mm. So then I looked into Linux, and I got kind of ended up very early on getting into SendMail and playing around with SendMail configuration files which I would not advise anybody ever do that. (laughs) But basically, I think back in 1998 is when I started using Linux. And then I was able to further save the charity a lot of money by building the infrastructure on Linux, on a Linux platform. And I couldn't actually convert the users to use Linux at that point.
1: Did you try though? I
0: did try. I always, I'm still trying. Um, uh, Yeah, so that's kind of where I come from. I mean, let's
1: stick on this trend for a while, because I'm fascinated with how you got going on this, because it sounds like you've been a hacker from day one by Mm -hmm. the sounds of it. So what was the version of Linux that you first started off with? Red Hat 5, Red Hat
0: 6, something like that. And so
1: the interesting thing is that most organizations do run off Linux-based networks. Mm -hmm. So how did you figure out that... Linux was the best way to be going about these things. How did you figure out how to build these computers? You know, the internet is a great source of information, but it was a much thinner source back then.
0: Oh, yeah. There wasn't a lot available early on. It was the best fit for me, Mm. my personality and the way I worked. Because I like to tear stuff apart, I always like to be able to get into the back end of it. I mean, my first interaction with computing was basic stuff, Radio Shack, Pandy color computers, Mm. stuff like that similar to the commodore stuff that you had over Mm -hmm. here so i got into that and i was able to you know get into back into things the linux documentation project has been around forever and if i needed to learn about routing i would just look at linux documentation about how to set up routing or how to set up an ipsec Mm. uh, vpn or you know very early on very hands-on step-by-step instructions you know i just dove in and started doing it and i still do that today I don't have the headspace to keep all of the vulnerabilities that are out there. So what I do is when I come across something new or something that looks like it might be likely in the environment I'm in, I can easily go online and figure out what are the basics, how does it work, and then get up to speed on it. And I have to do the same thing with the applications I'm looking at as well. Hmm. Like in Oracle, I'll be given an application I don't normally use, and I have to figure out a way to get up to an understanding of what I'm working on as quickly as possible. And I've always been good at hacking my way through studying, I guess, all through school. (laughs) I'd put off all my (laughs) revising till the very end before the tests and I'd have to sit there and cram. So I think one of the things that surprises me about my career is when I finally left school, I thought, oh, I'll never have to do any homework (laughs) or anything, I'll never have to do any reading, this'll be great. How wrong you were. (laughs) Exactly. I'd say 50% of my time is spent just learning new things or relearning. Mm. And that kind of leads into the importance of documentation, mm. because you don't want to live through trying to set something up in Linux or some kind of service and then get it running. It's taken over and you let it run. And then six months later, a year later, you have to fix something or you have to change something and you have to go, oh, I haven't thought about that for you know a year. How do I get up to speed? Mm. How can I make it work very quickly? And having good documentation is the way you do it. How do you
1: approach that from a documentation perspective? How do you make sure that documentation is useful?
0: Well, that comes in from the experiences I had. Like at Love Film, when I was a system administration Mm. manager, and I'd get external penetration tests back from external vendors. And I'd be looking at, you know, can we recreate what they've written here? And I'd often find no, because the quality of the documentation wasn't there. You know they don't have anything about the user journey down. They may say, we found this here, and you may have a URL. But if you're trying to figure out how does that impact the user, Mm. what's the user journey they take to get to it? And in big, complex applications, how do you even pull that API up, that page up? Where does that come from? So it's very important that you track it all the way down. So One of the key things I still do is I take any external scan results or penetration results from external vendors. I go through every single finding and see if I can actually recreate it from the documentation. And I find out, was it easy for me to understand what they were saying? Will the developers be able to understand what these guys are saying? Do I have to amend it? Do I have to rewrite it? And that's often what I'll end up doing. The document could be passed from a technician to a stakeholder. Mm -hmm. And a stakeholder wants to be able to understand what they're looking at. So I have very early on started to try to be very open to many audiences in the way I describe how to do certain you know, proof of concepts. They have to be pretty clear that people can understand. I forgot what the original question was. but um,
1: <laughs> now, That's really interesting, though. So, I mean, just on the career scale of things, then you started Love Film, what, 2005, somewhere around there?
0: 2006 right at the migration when Love Film and Video Island Mm. came together.
1: For those who remember Video Island there might be a very small percentage of people I barely remember it. Nope
2: (laughs) no idea.
0: My first week at work we're going to move one of the colos one of the data centers for one of the companies in with the other one Mm. and we're going to do it in one night and stay live the whole time. Wow. (laughs) And that was an experience that stuck with me till today. I mean it's The whole concept of what happens when you merge Mm. and when you have to bring code together, when you have to bring different technologies together and how it actually gets done. People set down good plans, project plans and everything and how it all needs to be done. We all have our best intentions, but it's not implemented or deployed all the way to spec. I always keep that in the back of my mind when I'm coming across something and I'm going, there's no way I'm going to be able to hack into this service or whatever. I'm sure they would have done this and I'm sure they would have done that. Back of my head, I'm going, did they really? (laughs) Have they really? And it's surprising how often there'll be a little slip up or there'll be something that happened during a migration that results in a vulnerability being there.
1: I recall from my time at Love, because I joined Love Film probably about five or so years after you, I think, I remember many different things that had come up from the migrations that had gone on in the past because obviously there was the Video Island migration, but I think there were many more because it had been merged several times.
0: European companies coming in. and
1: yeah. yeah. Do you remember the one where, I think we were doing Love Film to Amazon migration, and one of the data centers went offline because it turned out in a previous migration, someone had hacked the host file in one of the data centers or in the warehouse, I think, that was doing all the distribution of the DVDs. Do you remember that one?
0: I don't remember anything about a host file. I mean, the one thing that sticks out to me was a DDoS that happened in the European sites, Mm. and it was an eye-opener. Amazon at the time were a partner. We were working with them. They hadn't merged or anything at the time, and we had to talk to them about how to get out of it. But what had happened was one of our network engineers came back late from the pub and went online, and he was getting notifications from a cisco router or firewall or something and he thought it was a faulty port mm. and he sat and started working on it when he probably should have called somebody in
1: there was quite a lot of that yeah. film actually <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> drunk edge it is yeah <laughs> stops
0: after a couple of hours of going nowhere i think he called me or he called somebody else and we went have you thought about the fact that it might not be a port look at the traffic and stuff. And all of a sudden we realized that it was a DDoS. That's a distributed denial of service Mm. attack. And it was causing performance issues and causing site outages in our European sites. And it it was linked to something that was going on, I think in Scandinavia with multiple sites. Mm. But the thing that I learned from that was as we fought that, and I think we were 24 hours in and people kept coming on as they woke up and started working on it, but as we got closer to like 30, 35 hours, 40 hours, we start realizing our whole team is working on this and nobody's gone to sleep yet. <laughs> it was like, we're going to totally exhaust our resources yeah. just trying to fix this. we got to do this better in the future. We we're able to resolve things. It was about 48 hours before we got everything working fine again. Yeah. But it was one of those things when once you live through one of those, you learn the importance of having a secure and stable Environment. But also,
1: I think incident mm-hmm. management as well to that point, because, I mean, for those who don't know, we talked about the video island into Love Film migration. Love Film now doesn't exist. It's now part of Prime Video from Amazon because Amazon bought out Love Film and Jay and I were at Love Film when we went through that migration into Amazon Prime. And I think after going through that migration, we were a hell of a lot more organized. The last time I was involved in an incident, Amazon had started forwarding to localhost, Amazon.com. I think it was a junior engineer. They'd been asked to log on to the system and delete some old servers, and they'd logged on and deleted the new servers, and eventually it caused a chain reaction that went across the whole organization. And we had all pages at that time, if you remember, and you'd get like a Mm -hmm. wave of pages would go off across the office, and then everyone would dive onto a call. And I remember there was this one call that had probably... I don't know, maybe somewhere in the region of a thousand people on it. But the incident was solved across the whole of Amazon within probably about 20 minutes. The organization was incredible. Mm -hmm. Going from where you've started with building your own machines to expand the network to eight machines to, you know, even just as far as 2012, which was when I left Amazon. That's a huge journey of building your own machines to distributed cloud models and all that sort of stuff and being able to respond to incidents. There must be so much more you've learned along the way that we can pick out. Are there any other things on the incident management side of things that jump out for you?
0: Oh, I guess the days of the pager, they're not fond memories from my perspective <laughs> or for anybody that's worked in system administration or sysops, as we say nowadays. I think it's important whenever you're woken from a deep sleep or anything's just thrown at you out of the blue and you have to like get up to speed as fast as possible. The first thing you should always do, and this goes in just trying to debug a problem and code and stuff, look at the logs. Go look at the logs. There's so many times when I'd get knocked out of bed by a pager going off, and then I'd try to just wake up enough to try to log in, to set up my VPN, to get onto the system. Once I got into the system, I'm trying to still wake up, figure out where I'm at. What's the first thing you do? Well, I'm trying to debug it, and I'd still be half asleep. And I'd hack away at it, basically, Mm. for about 45 minutes or so. And then I'd go, the site's going to be down. I can't risk it. I got to call Dave Webb, who is a (laughs) systems architect. Yes. Every time I called Dave, he'd go, have you checked the logs? I'd go, oh. (laughs) Yeah, so one of the things is to get to the solution as quick as possible. Never forget the fact that you've got a lot of resources that are there in your system that can be very helpful.
1: Yeah, I think logging is so important. I've said that so many times to developers that I've worked with. I think being able to be a hacker and just keep hacking away at something is a great skill to have, but... You've got to get the logging in there because you need to have the logs available to you when everything hits the fan. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) I have a question that I'm going to derail the current conversation a little bit, because thinking back to how you got started, did you know you were a hacker? Did you know that that's what you were doing? Or were you just curious and just trying to understand how things work?
0: I was always curious and trying to understand Mm. how things work. And actually, that's the best way for me to learn stuff. The way I learn things is hands-on, go in and try to figure it out. I learn from my mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's how I ingrain some of the wisdom that I think I have now. Come from some really ridiculous mistakes that have been quite painful. One early lesson was never try to do any serious configuration work on a server on a Friday afternoon after (laughs) 4 o'clock because that's just messing with fire. You're going to break something. It's going to go down. You'll spend the whole weekend trying to fix it. And you'll be lucky and you'll maybe you'll get it done by Monday and everything'll be fine when everybody comes back into work. But there's nothing worse mm. than ending your week and starting your weekend out
2: with something like that. So Absolutely. Rn, do you want to get down to the pub on a Friday? We had a quite a lot of rules actually. No releases on Friday just, you know, release something on a Thursday. Yeah.
0: In real physical warfare, it's attack at dawn. (laughs) And I think in the digital world, attack on Friday afternoon. Wow, there you go. When you have governments and great, big, very well-organized, malicious endeavors in the digital world, they often will start at Friday or at the shift switchover in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. at a SOC, a security operations center. You know, when is everybody going to be at their least alert
1: are the most vulnerable yeah absolutely yeah.
0: that's a truism that's the way things are when do burglars burgle they burgle at night or when people are away when's the best time mm. to hit a startup friday when they're gone to the pub you know (laughs) strike
1: while they're in the pub
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) their pagers will go off and they'll have a few pints in them and they'll come back and try to fix stuff and you might be able to get a lot further off of their Mm. well-intended but maybe not so correct corrections
1: that's Mm. advice for black hat hackers out there then (laughs)
2: yeah
0: yeah
1: be quiet
2: yeah what are they often trying to get at though is it mostly ransomware or are they just messing things up for the sake of it
0: well back in the day i think early on it was about messing stuff up and people used to have the Mm. misconception that it was just teenagers playing with their home computers and doing that but that's not really the case what you're after is something that's profitable and ransomware is one thing credit card details is another thing Mm. basically what is the core proprietary informational thing that an organization values so Mm. is it their customers Or what are they after? The attacker, do they want just a load of user credentials? I always ask people this, do you use the same password and username on every service you use? And a lot of people say, yeah. Well, do you know what happens when a big company gets hacked and they download millions of credentials? The first thing they do is they take those credentials and they try to use them on all the other major Mm -hmm. websites like Amazon, all the email and and banks and stuff like that. So- Mm. I think just user information, just that. I think the key thing we're looking for is credentials. Mm. I'm tasked with trying to pivot myself further and further into a network and see what I can do. So are people doing anything that's leaking information? Are there practices and processes that can be done a little bit more securely? To give you an example, Mm. like let's say you're already in a network and you've rooted one system. That means you have administrative rights on one system. In Linux, you can sit there and run a simple command called grep, and you can grep recursively through the entire file structure. You just have to grep through the home directory, which has all the users, the administrative users on it. And you're basically trying to find the occurrence of the word password or user in their command history. And if you can find that, chances are you might find somebody who's actually put a clear text command into a script Mm -hmm. or into a command line code. And sometimes the simple fix would be, you should have used a flag on that utility that you're using that prompts you for your password. That way you wouldn't have put it in. So it's not going to be in your history. And then when it's prompted, it's not stored in the history. Mm. And I've often found that I can find people have left credential artifacts in their Bash history, which is their terminal user session history.
1: Which is an extremely useful tool anyway. I like to use history a lot to look at the things I've entered in the past so I can build, you know, my own scripts and things. I don't think it had occurred to me that it could be used against me.
2: Yeah. And is this when you're being paid as a pen tester here? I'm trying to figure out the divide between your ethical hacking versus what you're kind of paid to do. Are
1: you asking whether Jay uses his talents for
2: evil? (laughs) For world domination. I always work for
0: chaotic good, not chaotic evil. Yeah, That's my main job is basically I'm always working on Oracle systems, Mm. depending on what we're doing. If we're doing web application testing, we're usually working on pre-production systems. What we'll do is we'll spin up our own instance of a service and populate it as if it was going to be used by a company. And then we'll work on that in that realm we can be a little bit more aggressive in what we're doing if we're working on production systems we always have to be very very careful about what we do and having past experience as a system administrator there's nothing that would be more embarrassing than to cause outages by my doing what i'm doing you know so mm-hmm. It's very important that you tread very lightly and are very aware of the impact of what you're doing and what it can have. You don't want to, like, saturate the network with a whole bunch of scans and things that could cause an outage. You have to get in, assess what's the stability of the network you're in. What are the VMs like? What are the virtual machines like? Have they been built robustly? Do they have enough resources? What can they handle? Mm. And, you know, in prod systems, usually they're pretty robust and they're set up to take a lot of load. But when you get into development systems, you may find it, you could kick off two or three simple Nmap network mapping scans. You know, you'll get a call and somebody's like, mm. can you stop testing for a while? Because our network's starting to go crazy. But that's in a very small network. Mm. That's not like a production environment.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask how far you take it. You know, how close to the edge do you get? Because obviously you have mentioned avoiding disruption to service and denial of service attacks and things and actually loading them up yourself. But how close to the edge do you try to get?
0: Well, it depends on what we're tasked with. Mm. Sometimes we're tasked with compliance validation. So, we wouldn't be doing anything like that. We're just looking at making sure that the overall things look good, that we have the right up to date on versions of packages and everything's patched. The next thing would be like PCI compliance, where we go a little bit further. And then we get into red team Hmm. and blue team testing, which I haven't spoken about much. But red team is where we're actually going in and trying to go as far as we possibly can. And the blue team is on the inside, and they're the defensive team, and they're mm. monitoring their intrusion detection systems and stuff and seeing if they can identify that we're coming in. A lot of the tools that we use in standard testing are pretty noisy on a network, and it's kind of like a bull in a china shop, Mm. and they can tell we're there. But malicious hacking and like illegal hacking, the goal is to be stealth and to be quiet and like it's kind of a ninja hacking You know, you want to get in very quietly and you want to lurk. You want to plant an advanced persistent threat. You don't want to go in and say, hey, I'm here. I've done it. I've gotten the flag. We win. That's not what they do. They go in and they want to like just go and move in, live in your network and start to pump data out of your network without you ever knowing they're there.
1: That's the blue hat versus red hat. Then it's a bit capture the flag sort of thing.
0: It's a capture the flag thing. That's cool. So, and in that, in Red Hat, in Red Hat, I never should have brought up Red Hat. (laughs) In Red Team, when you're doing those, you're going as Mm. far as you can. So you're trying to totally take over the network. Once you get one box, we say we pop the box, we get the root. Then we try to pivot on that box and pop another box. And then we just try to work our way and then try to jump. If we're in a, let's say a cloud tenancy, can we get out of the tenancy we're in? Can mm. we get into another tenancy? Mm. If a tenancy hosts a bunch of other subnets that are belong to different customers, can we go from one to the other? That kind of thing. We're looking at are things properly segmented. You know, we want to make sure that customer A and customer B. They may be physically next to each other in the hardware, but they have no way of getting into each other's networks.
1: And do you get to do much on the blue team side then as well of trying to do the detection? No. That's more the love film, Amazon sort of...
0: Yeah. When you're on the defensive side is when you are running a service and you want to keep it running. Mm. So now I basically concentrate on the red team side when I'm lucky enough to get to do that. We don't do it a lot. We schedule like annual or a couple of times a year where we'll have key major projects where we're trying to do something like that. And those projects can go for long periods of time. If we're taking validations or just regular compliance testing, if it's validation, we want to get that done in about two weeks. Mm. That's kind of the goal. But if you find stuff, it may take longer. And then you may move into the compliance. We try to get that done in four weeks. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing red team stuff, that's a totally different thing because you want to sneak in, and you may do things very, very slowly. It's a totally different type of engagement.
1: Now that you've spent six years working on the red team, do you think that would make you better at the blue team if you went back to that side?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've become part of the blue team in a sense where you're working with them to fix things. Mm. We're all part of the same team. The company you work for, you want to protect your livelihood. Mm. It makes it easier to get the point across to the development teams and stuff, instead of having an external pen tester come in with a report and say, this might happen or that might happen, to be able to come in and say, well, this is what we did do. And because we could do that, then we could do this. And we did do this. And then we did that. And then we actually did do this. Mm. And when we did that, then this happened. (laughs) Can you just lay that out in front of them. And it's amazing how quickly people fix stuff when you do it that way, as opposed to saying this might happen or that might happen.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you show you working, really, and what the best way of describing that is? But you talked a bit about that with your documentation side of things earlier.
0: Yeah, that brings up a good area to talk about. My new favorite toy is JupyterLab. Oh, yes. And using Lab as a documentation engine. Let's say if you can set your testing platform up for Python and you're running all your tests from there, you can actually put all your testing scripts in a Jupyter notebook, Mm. and you can rerun them. So instead of having a document where you're just showing the steps, I did this, this, and that, you can spin up your Jupyter. I run mine in uh, Docker, so it's a container. Mm. I'll spin that up, and then I'll log all of my activity on one engagement in Jupyter notebook. And then I can actually rerun that, but I also use tools to do screen grabs and things. My reports have a lot of visual stuff in them. Mm. It's not just the documentation. You can actually physically run them again, and you can actually see the physical results. And then what we do is, if there's sensitive information in there, before we share it, we obfuscate it. Mm. You know, We blur it out so you can't actually see any of the sensitive information. But basically, I find the best way to do it is to document as you go, because things happen so quickly. And if you just say, oh, I found this, and I'll find that, If you just let yourself go and just start doing stuff, at the end of your day, you'll find that, oh, what did I do? Did I log everything that I've done? You have to slow yourself down and you have to become more process oriented and make sure you record everything you're doing. That way, when you go back to describe to others how you did it, you have a nice setup process as opposed to saying, I can't remember exactly what I did. I think I did this. (laughs) I think I did that. That never flies very well when you're dealing with people that are trying to deliver a product with a deadline. You want to be able to get in there and say, this is a problem. This is why it's a problem. This is what you do to make it happen, to make sure that you fixed it, just run this again. That's the important part of it. And I think for me, Jupiter Lab has been an amazing tool for that kind of thing and i've just started using it i played around with it a little last mm. year but i came off of a modern binary exploitation training course and they were using jupyter lab as a lab documentation tool and it was just mind blowing what you could do with it
1: so to get to jupyter labs did you go from what like excel sheets to jupyter labs or was there something in between
0: oh well that's the other thing i'll be given inventories and stuff in spreadsheets mm. and my biggest problem with Windows and a lot of GUI interface operating systems is you can't really programmatically parse through that information easily. Hmm. You can if somebody was very regimented about their use of commas <laughs> and if they normalize their data and everything, yeah, a spreadsheet could be used. But the first thing I do is if I get a spreadsheet, I'll try to convert it into a comma separated value format
1: uh-huh.
0: or a tab separated value format right away. And then I can sit there and I can just script back into it. So I can just use awk and grep. Awk is a tool for filtering text standard output. Very simple, very programmable. But that's the kind of thing I like to be able to do on the fly. I might have a million lines, two million lines Mm -hmm. of results. And I'm only after those lines that have certain patterns or strings in them. So how do I do that? Well, I use simple Linux and Unix utilities and just pipe the output of one into the input of the other. And i string those along. And I basically get the computer to do the work. Mm. In this day of age, you can't manually digest the amount of data that you're working with Mm. in a spreadsheet. You have to be able to use your computing power to the best that you can. For me, I try to not use GUI interface systems and try to use everything I can to programmatically manipulate And move data and sort data and count data to get to where I'm going to as quickly as I can. If I did it manually with a mouse, it would take me weeks and months to do what I'm doing. Is this how
1: everybody in your team approaches it? Does everybody approach this in the same sort of way? Or is this a very unique to you approach?
0: Well, the pen testers have been around the longest, I think most of us have been working in Linux for a long time. Mm. But what I've been doing a lot of lately is training with the new guys coming in who are coming in from working in a Mac environment or a Windows environment. And they may do stuff with PowerShell and things like that. But they haven't really grasped the power of simple Unix utilities for analyzing data. Mm. And that's something that I've been doing a lot of progressive training in with the new hires. And I do stipulate that this is how I do it. Now, I'm not sure if this is how you want to do it, but this is how I do it. Mm. But for me, if I find myself doing anything repetitively or anything manually, or if I find that my wrist is starting to hurt cuz i'm doing the same thing with my mouse over and mm. over again. Mm. I'm thinking this is so scriptable. This is time to write a bash script or write a simple python script or, you know, get some c code in there, do something, build a tool. And i think that's one of the things i enjoy most about what i do. And at the beginning of this, we we're talking about i think even before we started recording how i like boat building. Yeah. And For me, the thing I like about boat building or woodworking is building your own tools to get specific jobs done. Mm. So if you need to do something and you don't have the tool for it, you build a jig or you build this or that template, you build it, and then you reuse it and it makes your job easier. Well, in ethical hacking, I do the same thing. I build my own tools. So I use all the other tools. I use Burp Suite and I use Metasploit and these common scanning tools, but I often have to add to that. And I have to create my own tools. That's the part I really enjoy because I can sit there. I'm still making things, but I'm making things as I need them. Hmm. So it's quite rewarding and it's very creative, which I enjoy. So
1: I think that's a common theme actually to good developers is that they're builders and they will build stuff to solve problems. The thing on the ethical hacking side of things, it feels to me like there's quite a high bar for entry to get to the point that you're at. It's one of those jobs where I suppose some of the information is really hidden about it because obviously you don't want to expose that much information on the Internet. So, I mean, obviously we've talked about the route that you've gone through in your career to get to being an ethical hacker and a pen tester. How does one go about doing that today? I mean, where do the people who are joining your team, the new hires, I mean, where are you hiring them from? What's the journey that they've gone through? Like, how do you get to be an ethical hacker if that's something that you want to do?
0: I used to think that you had to be like really super hot coder Mm. or, you know, a wizard with code, but it can be a system administrator. Let's say you're a junior coder or you are a junior engineer and you're interested in information security. Seek out the people that are stuck with the job of compliance. I got into security when I was handed the job of PCI, single point of contact for love film. (laughs) And I had to take care of all the PCI audits at the payment card industry, data standards. Seek out that side of it as far as the compliance side. Learn as much as you can about what is compliance, why is it important? When we were at Amazon, they had a very good program for security certifiers, mm. and they had a very good program for new hires. I mean, I was part of a team where we'd give lectures and presentations to new hires about information security inside Amazon. We talk about the tools that we use to maintain standards, the tools we use to make sure that we keep our packages and pack our systems up to date, and then we give them real live scenarios or historical scenarios of what has happened in the past at Amazon. And I do the same thing with new hires for Oracle on our team. We talk about why you do things certain ways, how to do things. But for somebody to get into it, I'll start from a totally different perspective. Read some of the books out there and not the technical books. Kevin Mitnick, very famous hacker, wrote a book. I think it's called Ghost in the Machine. Hmm. And then there's another book called The Cuckoo's Egg,
1: you know I was going to mention The Cuckoo's Egg to you? Yeah. (laughs) Because that's a great book.
0: They're great books and they read like novels and it kind of gives you some insight into what's going on in this world of hacking. Mm. And I think another thing to do is seek out old back copies of 26,000. It's a magazine that originally started for freaking, which is phone hacking. Not the phone hacking that we've seen in the media. Mm. But back in the days when you had pay phones. Yeah. And I think the boys over at Apple, they got their start with the blue box where you could go up to a payphone and you could manipulate a payphone to get free calls on it.
1: I think that's been in one of the movies about Steve Jobs, hasn't it? I'm sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: There's great books and stuff out there on that. And you don't always have to read the boring, dry, technical stuff. Mm. Go out and read some of the interesting stories like The Cuckoo's Egg.
1: Well, my dad gave me that book, The Cuckoo's Egg. I think it's a fantastic book because it's based in Berkeley University, if I remember rightly. Yep. There was a miscalculation on the spend on the mainframe, if I remember rightly.
0: Yeah. When I was a wee lad, (laughs) I can remember going to the computer center at the university that my dad taught at and did great big room, great big computers. And if you wanted to get on it, you'd have to get on a terminal and you'd log time. And then that was a chargeable thing. Mm. And the cuckoo's egg, he's basically chasing after a few pence difference over the yeah. course of a month or so. And it starts out with that, and it turns into a year or a multi-year long hunt to figure out what's going on. And he finds a hacker in Germany or something. Or I don't want to tell too much about it. No, no,
1: but I think that the interesting thing is that it expands out, doesn't it, from Berkeley to actually it being jumped across networks into other branches of like the US government as well if i remember rightly. Yep. I was going to bring it up because you were talking earlier about trying to find a vulnerability and then just skipping from one <laughs> network to another network and you know trying to exploit those vulnerabilities. So it was just reminding me of the cuckoo's egg as you were talking about it. If anyone hasn't read it then they should definitely read it because it's a fantastic book and i just looked it up actually it's available on audible so if you can't be bothered reading it you can always listen to it. Yeah, it's great. It's a great. <laughs> book. What's
2: the so the goal is there It is to understand what's possible, rather than the specifics on how to do it. It's like, well, what are people doing? And
0: That particular book, it shows you how that minor variation turns into something huge. And I think that's something you have to keep in mind. Computers, when they're doing stuff, they'll do exactly what you tell them to do, and they'll continue to do it, no problem. But when there's an unexplained variation, we have to say, well, what's going on with that? There's a lot of interesting vulnerabilities that deal with out-of-band attacks where you're actually, you're working on the website and there's no feedback from the website whatsoever that there's an issue. But if you can get a remote code execution to run and contact you like phone home, if you can get the server to phone your server outside of this whole experience inside the web application, then you've got something. Then you go, okay, like I can get the backend system that's hosting this environment to contact me. Okay, that means I can run code on this system. And then you can start to take it over. So it's these little things, noticing the discrepancies, I suppose, discrepancies, timing differences. There's a whole realm of vulnerabilities where you can test if it's true or not. You can set a binary problem, inject it into a web application. And then if the web page comes back immediately, that's a negative If it comes back in five seconds, that's a positive. Mm. I guess the concept is trying to get into reading as much as you can about this. And the variables and the possibilities are endless. Mm. And the ingenious ways that people have figured out how to manipulate systems is just fascinating. There's a lot of good books out there for that.
2: Mm. So I have a question on that real quick. Chris taught me that if I put a period at the end of the dot-com thing, I can override the paywall on certain magazines. How does that work? Do you know how that works?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that, well, lack of input validation, probably. There you go. My problem is I get so involved in what I'm working on that I can't always retain everything. Like I can work in-depthly on certain vulnerabilities for months on end, and then I'll switch to something. My mind will be blank. my Hmm. personal random access memory is very limited it's the equivalent (laughs) of what you'd have on a laptop in the 90s
2: why why remember anything if you can just look it up though you know and see what we're saying
0: and i think that's the next key thing and when we get back to how do you get into it Sure, sure you don't have to be a hot coder you don't have to even be a hot systems administrator but you do have to be very good at filtering what comes back to you in a search engine. Mm. When you're out there trying to figure out information and try to get to what you're looking for, you need to understand what are the hacks, the Google hacks you can use? What are Google dorks? Look these things up and learn what they are and figure out how can you take millions and millions and millions of lines of information and get it down to what you need right then. Mm. You may be interested in something like football, or or sailing or whatever and you just want to find information about that if if you're good at limiting and using the internet to get information the information that you want you're already halfway where you need to be to become somebody that works in information security
2: yeah i described this on one of our first episodes actually when i was a junior developer i just would google something and i would see a list of results and i wouldn't have a clue what i was looking at but now I'll Google everything. There's just the same amount of results and you're able to just refine what it is you're looking at and you know, oh, that looks something like I was expecting or whatever. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that.
1: Yeah. Do you have any perspective on, for example... We keep hearing things about the vulnerabilities, or not really the vulnerabilities, but I suppose people being exploited by the likes of Facebook or Apple or Google, having mics listening and giving targeted adverts and stuff. Do you have any perspective on that? I mean, do you have cameras covered and microphones covered and turned off and stuff like that? I'm curious about how you approach
0: that. I do and I don't. When I started seeing how easy it was to find artifacts of credentials, on systems, I started to be very paranoid about how I did things on my own system. So I'm very paranoid about how I type in passwords. Mm. I generate passwords. I don't know my passwords. I have to use key pairing services or write scripts that call the passwords that I need at any point in time because I'm using 16 character or longer password sets, you know, Mm. and because I do generate passwords for many different things, I can't keep track so I have to use databases and things to even manage my passwords, but I purposely try not to know my passwords. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have them backed up and I can get to them if I need to, but I try not to key them in all the time and things like that. I'm not so worried about microphones and stuff. I like to pull up processes mm-hmm. and look at what processes are running on my system. I like to look at what ports are running and just kind of do an assessment now and again. Are all of these stuff that I'm doing. <laughs> I have some cloud instances that I use. I use AWS instances. I use a lot of Oracle cloud instances. Mm-hmm. And on some of them, if you're running a web service and you just run it and just let it sit there and it could have nothing on it and there's nothing that anybody can get to, but just looking at your access logs is a mind opener. How many spiders and how many scripts and how many robots are hitting your website? On a day-to-day basis, it's unbelievable. Really. And then what do you do then? Well, you can filter your traffic. Hmm. You can set things up so that you feel more comfortable. Each person has their own comfort levels about how their system should be set up.
1: But it doesn't really affect how you use your personal computer. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We think we talked on one of our news episodes as well, because obviously we do interviews and we do news separately. We're talking about the Roomba on one of these things. And I think this is a great example of hacking. They have figured out that you can use the distance measuring system, which is essentially like an internal radar. You know, it's firing off a signal and it's figuring out from the response time how close a piece of furniture is. Because it picks up vibrations, they can turn that vibrational signal back into speech. So if you so happen to be in the same room as a Roomba, then it can interpret the speech patterns and thus translate it back into language, which I just think is fascinating, which is proper hacking. I wondered if knowing sort of things like that, whether that changes your perspective and there's some other stuff we should be doing on a personal aspect other than just password protection to protect ourselves.
0: There's a lot of interesting proof of concepts out there. Some of them are done as parts of doctorate degrees and things like that. Mm. The thing is, in the sea of humanity, how much of a target are you? Mm. It depends on what your presence is like. In the last year, I've discontinued my Facebook account. I Mm. don't use Facebook anymore. And I've become more conscious of why are they giving me this service for free? Yes. It's just more that I don't like people getting metrics off me, figuring out demographic information.
1: We've said this time and time again as well, is that essentially with things like Facebook, the reason it's free is because you are the product.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That kind of thing I'm disturbed with. Being attacked, not so much. There's, you know, what a honeypot is, you know, when you set up a very desirable looking system. Mm. And it's kind of sandboxed and you let people hack it. And then you just look at their techniques and you go, oh, that's an interesting way to do things. I would have to remember that. From that (laughs) perspective, if people want to hack my systems, they can, but are you sure you want to? Mm -hmm. Sure. Are you familiar with the beef browser hooking? I don't think I am, no. You basically how to hook somebody else's browser. You get them to come to your site and then you hook their browser. So then you hook into their browser And then you can start to manipulate their system through their browser. Really? I don't really know that much about it. I've played Mm. with it, but it's very fascinating the kind of things you can do. Absolutely. With that kind of thing. So when I talk about, am I afraid about having my system locked down? My work system, yes, my work system has to be very locked down. But my other systems, some of them are purposely loosely secure.
1: So you can see how people are approaching it.
0: Yeah, you can see if you're actually getting any traffic, if you are getting hit.
1: So that was actually going to be one of our other questions, was how do you stay that one step ahead? So I guess Mm. that's probably got to be part of it.
0: I mean, you have to be very vigilant. I mean, it's like living in a big city. Like, I come from the Midwest, and, you know, I grew up in areas where you didn't lock your doors and everything like Mm. that. But when you went into the Twin Cities, for instance, and you went into the state fair, and you're on the fairway, and there's thousands of people, you act differently, you do things differently, you're more paranoid. Maybe you put your billfold in your front pocket. Mm. Or like when you're on the underground, there's things you do differently. The internet should be treated like that. Depending on what you're doing and where you're going, you should always think that you're not going to be in Kansas. You know, (laughs) as I said to Dorothy (laughs) and Toto, you're not in Kansas anymore. I think people have to take on board a sense of responsibility and be proactive about it. I mean, just recently, I almost clicked on a link. There's some that have been coming out in emails lately coming from like the postal service, Mm, Yeah, you know, where they say, we've got a package for you, but you need to pay so much. So just, you know, and it looks all legit and I'm not even going to get into how easy it is to make a website look legit. It's not the postal service.
1: Yeah, that's a good one actually. That's mm. the closest I've seen that's been convincing recently.
0: You know, that's one of those things where they almost social engineered me perfectly. Almost, got and you me. went to, <laughs> and I didn't. You know, I just went, oh my god, and I looked at it, then I did the research really quickly, and I realized what it was. So, people say this all the time: if you're not expecting to be contacted by someone or some organization, and if your bank won't normally do that, it's not going to be the bank. If you've just won something that's too good to be true. Chances are it's too good to be true. And you're actually being socially engineered. I guess that's the one thing to keep in mind. We talk about hacking into systems and hacking into web applications, but there's a far easier thing to hack. And that's the human Mm. social engineering. Somebody is probably one of the most effective ways. And that's when you get up against a really tight system. That's well-secure That's the best way in, is to hack the staff, hack the employees, Mm. spearfish them. But you're actually going for a specific type of individual or a specific individual, and you're trying to figure out how to con them into thinking you're somebody you're not and getting what you're after, which is basically their access credentials. And that's how a lot of the big hacks are still being done, and that's how they will still be moving into the future. It's been around forever it's a con
1: so pre-computer i suppose that to a certain oh, totally. degree yeah, yeah. The, it
2: is the con yep the art of the con mm. i had a question i've seen a quite a couple of times that say apple will pay out 40 grand 100 grand if someone reveals a vulnerability in their software say safari or something like that have you ever been tempted by those kind of
0: oh yeah there's ethical hackers that do that
2: absolutely
0: i think they go into the guise of security analysts but they basically set up and they specialize in certain types. Yeah, it's uh bounty. Bounty,
2: yeah, exactly, right? Payouts, yeah.
0: and you can make a good living doing that.
2: Have you not thought about doing that, you know, getting involved in that? I'm not good enough to do that. Yeah. I have tried to claim some new findings.
0: I've tried it. Uh, you know, they're like, thanks, but no thanks. That was discovered like six months ago. Or, <laughs> It all depends on the kind of work you're doing, too. Mm. Some of the work I do, I can't do that. That's not something that i'm allowed to do
1: do you have to sign like some sort of charter or anything do you have to sign up to say that you know as an ethical hacker you won't use your powers for evil
0: yeah i think that's part of your contract in general oh, just
1: in terms of your mm. employment contract yeah yeah
0: certain members of the team and what we do we get data security or what's it called official secrets act clearance all oh, right wow. like that so that's another thing if for individuals that are interested in becoming ethical hackers Being able to get that kind of clearance is very helpful, too, because there are certain types of government websites where you have to be a citizen of the country and you have to have security clearance to be able to even work. Because there is a probability that you might come across some very sensitive information.
1: Well, actually, we've talked about that before with SpaceX, that actually they have to be American. There is only Americans in SpaceX because of how closely related it is to actually being rocket science. And therefore, it's a potential vulnerability for the US.
0: They might be
2: complying to some American or US law mm-hmm. with proprietary property. Or It's probably that, to be fair. It's probably law-based that they're not allowed to be non-American. You know? I
1: think it was. There was definitely an act as well. And I can't remember exactly which act it is at this particular moment in time. But it was a proper compliance thing that they had to be American.
0: Yeah, there are some systems I can't test over here because I don't have dual citizenship. Mm. I should, but I haven't done it yet. I've been over here over 25 years. <laughs> but there are certain times I can't work on certain projects because I'm not a UK citizen, a full UK citizen.
1: Wow. But I guess that does give you insight to be able to go and work on some American projects, especially with the likes
0: of Oracle. No, oh, no? That just came up. I was supposed to work on a project, but because I'm not residing oh, really? in the US, I can't work on that project either.
1: Oh, that puts you between a rock and a hard place in a certain degree, but you'll get other work that you'll have to do. Oh, there's doing. tons of projects. T- tons of so, projects.
0: Yeah, <laughs> there's tons of projects to work on. There's no lack of projects.
1: So I'm curious as well. What's the biggest vulnerability you've ever discovered? What's the biggest one you've ever encountered?
0: I can't really talk to any detail on some of this stuff, so I'm going to decline that
2: one. So
1: we've reached the point on that one. You, you get to decline that question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: was easily avoidable you don't have to say what it was or anything like that but do you think this yeah, is something, they yeah they often
0: are very simple things yeah it's a little lack of insight or i guess when you talk about credential artifacts being left in command histories mm-hmm. that kind of thing but i must say it's amazing how quickly things change one year you'll have a very fashionable very lucrative kind of attack vector that you use mm-hmm. and it's like guaranteed for a while it's like oh that worked excellent add that to a finding and then all of a sudden boom you can't do it anymore which is good that's what we're trying to do exactly because i revisit the same applications year after year i can start a new engagement and just look at my previous and basically like doing regression testing making sure that all the previous fixes are still intact mm-hmm. okay and it is rewarding to see that at one point we could do something your efforts have made it so that you can't do that anymore mm-hmm. that's quite a rewarding occurrence when that happens yeah i mean that's the one thing that's the downside of doing what i do is we've got all kinds of great stories but we can't really can't say can't really talk about it you know it's not something we want to talk about
1: that's where it becomes Mm. part of the secret society Yeah. yeah
2: well is there a good community then do you connect with people across the world around hacking or ethical hacking or anything like that
0: Yeah, there are plenty of blogs and great sites for that. I think it's up to the individual how much engaged they want to get in the social aspect of that. Even when I say social, like their online presence, Mm -hmm. certain engineers are certain ethical hackers, if they did physical work as well as digital work, which means breaking and entering type of hacking, they probably don't want their profile to be very well known. Mm -hmm. So they play more low key.
2: COVID really messed things up for that then, isn't it really?
0: <laughs> but they're great. I think I should probably try to be more engaging that way. I use those resources all the time. And sometimes I'll put my paddle in the water and add a little bit to that. But I do it more internally with the teams I'm working with. Within Oracle, we have multiple orgs and there are security teams within the various orgs. And being able to work with the various teams is an enjoyable thing, but you kind of limited because you're inside a bubble, but mm. it is good to interact and maintain a network that way, because there may be something they can help you with at a certain point in time, or you may be able to help them with something at a certain point in time. Mm. So it all depends on what somebody's situation is. If you're like a contractor or a consultant type of ethical hacker, where you're moving around to various companies all the time, it would be different. Mm. When you're in one org, we kind of limit what we can do.
2: Mm. So, yeah, I think we're coming up to time now, but I'd like to ask one more question if that's okay. Yeah. Given that the digital age and technology and everything is becoming so much more prevalent, especially since coronavirus, is it becoming more difficult to hack into things as things are growing more complex? Different technologies are working together through physical and digital devices. Is it becoming more difficult to kind of hack into things? You would think it would, but Hmm. I think the problem is with complexity
0: comes chaos and the fact that it becomes very hard to manage. And as we move into more automated systems, the ability of humans to have the headspace to do that becomes more and more limited. But the thing is, they're trying to deliver stuff to market. No developer has ever had the time they needed or been able to take a project all the way to where they got it perfect. It's not like Leonardo when he spent, I don't know how many years on the Mona Lisa. Mm. Right, I mean, I'm sure there's some code and apps out there that's the that people have done that too, but it's so big and so complex that there's always going to be mistakes, mm. there's always going to be errors, there's always going to be shortcuts, and I think it's just there's always going to be people who are stubborn enough to just keep looking for stuff until they find stuff. Mm-hmm. You get addicted to it, yeah. When I'm not getting anywhere with a hack. I often will go, it's because I'm not good enough or I don't have enough knowledge. So then I keep on finding more and more information and doing more research and finding out more about what I can do until I do have enough. And then I might get lucky and something will work. So as things get bigger and bigger and computers get more powerful, as passwords get bigger, the speed at which we can break passwords is always moving up. So I don't think we'll ever be free. Mm. we're always going to be working to make things more
2: secure yeah bring us full circle to this idea that what makes a good hacker is someone who just wants to understand how things work and Mm -hmm. is persistent with that you know so
0: and don't give up don't give up just keep trying because the feeling you get when it actually works it makes it all worthwhile
2: i have that with bugs (laughs) (laughs) bugs in my code it's the same thing
1: yeah, I think that's a really good end to this conversation. So, I mean, I think all that remains really is to thank you very much for your time, Jay, and sharing what you could share with us, because it's been incredibly insightful. We've learned a whole lot. I think we've got plenty of resources to go away and look up now and include in the show notes as well. So, again, just thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Oh, It's been very fun to have the opportunity to share a little bit about what I do. I mean, I wish I could tell you guys more, like, especially if it's like a bunch of old love film guys at the pub it's a totally different scenario, but <laughs> we got all kinds of great war stories, but I'm very limited on what I can actually talk about. That's the thing I was most nervous about coming into this.
1: That was a really good talk. I really enjoyed that. And I think I would have loved to have spent more time talking about some of the love film stories. Do you remember when we were looking at the data migration stuff for moving into the Amazon data warehouse for the first time when it was still the film? Yeah. And we were going through the previous data migrations. And I think it was Dave at the time that said that we had a delay with migrating the database. And I asked him why. And he said, well, we put it in the taxi and then it got stuck in traffic on its way to the new data center.
0: That is true. That's a true story. When (laughs) I joined that migration, we had multiple taxis moving servers in case... The case of the taxi got in an accident and we lost some of the servers, those were the days.
1: So I suppose that's like making sure that you're not flying the president and the vice president on the same plane. Exactly. <laughs> the servers go in different taxis.
0: <laughs> There's some great stories. Like You guys don't get to go to the data center. My team were the guys that got to go to the data center. and We used to talk about security and whenever we're looking to get a new data center or something, we're always looking at how secure they are. And I can remember being at this one data center. And we couldn't get in or the lock broke or something. So one of my guides is standing there waiting to get in. They're sitting there Mm. and the engineer shows up and he lifts a floor tile up in the hallway in the data center, crawls underneath into our locked compound, pops a floor tile out the other side, (laughs) goes in, unlocks the door. I'm like, oh yeah, that's really secure. (laughs) Yeah, stuff like that. Physical security. Physical security, yeah.
1: No, I think there was some great stories from that, but I mean, it's great to catch up with you after all these years as well.
0: Yeah, and can I just say, I really enjoy your guys' podcasts. They're quite oh, enjoyable. thank you. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Tell your friends.
0: Yeah, I will. <laughs> well, I haven't listened to Ben's yet, so I'm going to check that one out.
1: Oh, yeah. Ben's one's a good one. I think one of my favourites as well, actually, is uh, Fred George. I don't know if you know Fred George. He's the second to last episode. He's the grandfather of microservices, uh-huh. the guy who pretty much invented microservices. And he started out in IBM in the 70s and just invented things and stayed on the bleeding edge for his entire career. He's a fascinating guy. How do you guys know him? So after I left Love Film, well, after I left Amazon, I went to Tesco. When I was at Tesco, I met the guys from Contino, if you know Contino, their DevOps company. I think it's defunct now. It's been rolled into some other bigger consultancy. But I started doing some work for Sainsbury's, which was like a digital transformation for Sainsbury's. That was with North Highland, which is another agency. This is all roundabout, and Contino and North Highland had a connection because they'd both worked together on the Daily Mail, which was where Fred implemented his microservices for the first time commercially. So they bring Fred in, and he's this little guy in his 70s, probably almost 80 now. He lives in Las Vegas in, Mm -hmm. like, Skyscraper on the Strip, pretty much. He's a fascinating little fella. They call him the Human Hand Grenade. So, he comes in and tells you developers that you don't need to write unit tests. Your code should be like 10 lines of code. And if you can't write 10 lines of code and have it work, then you shouldn't be a developer. And he sort of causes an immense amount of chaos in an organization. And then the consultants come in and clean up after him. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I first met him, because I've been doing a whole load of stuff in microservices since the Amazon days. And yeah, Fred was just a fascinating guy. He's got so many talks on YouTube. The Lazy Project Manager. That one's coming up soon. He's fascinating. Did
0: he write the book? Because that's a book.
1: Yeah, he wrote the book. Yeah. Okay. So I met Peter when he launched the book. I was at his book launch, as it happened 10 years ago. And I was on his podcast. His podcast was the first podcast I ever did, talking about his book when it came to the 10th anniversary of it. So we had him on recently. So he's not this week. I think the week after is Peter. And then we've got Orden is a fascinating guy because he brought Fred George in to do the work at the Norway government. Mm-hmm. They're actually the guys that give out the money in Norway. So they give out like a third of the budget for Norway. And they went for a Kubernetes, microservices, Kafka-driven platform. So they went from doing four releases a year on mainframes to 1,400 releases a week using kubernetes
0: yeah kubernetes is a very interesting area it's one of the areas that's very interesting to me at the moment i mean you got to make sure you got the right images are configured correctly oh yeah because we are finding that it's not hard to pop those boxes if you know what you're doing what you can do with them is another thing sometimes they're built in a secure manner that there's not a lot of tools or anything on them Hmm. but it is an area that's interesting the last project i worked on
1: I was the architect, the designer for the system, and trained all of the engineers in how to build a microservices architecture using Kubernetes. And it got so complicated when you're trying to keep track of 150-odd microservices. We ended up having to put Terraform in place so that we yep. could just keep track of the versions. It was a fascinating exploration into that because Terraform is brilliant. If you oh, it, it is. And yeah. you
0: know, in the last year, one of the most interesting areas that I've gotten into is taking and using Ansible. Mm as a testing tool, it's present on all the systems in a cloud network. Then I can go in there and I can use it as a deployment mechanism to put all of my toolkits and things that I use onto systems. And because we used to have to manually do stuff, we'd do sampling, but I can now do testing on hundreds of systems simultaneously using system administration tools that are already there. Mm. So all of these tools are very fascinating. I I like taking something that's built for one thing and using it-
1: For another purpose, yeah
0: using it for another purpose. So yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think Ansible is particularly powerful. I think it works quite well with Terraform as well. You know, you can kind of fill in the gaps of what Terraform can't do with things like Ansible.
0: Yeah. But yeah. yeah, infrastructure is code. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it's at. I mean, it's hot topic with us at the moment, but there's just so much more to know. So it's like an ongoing process. Let me just say out of all the jobs I've ever had, this is by far the most enjoyable one because back in the day when working in startups and when you've first building websites, before people knew what was going on and you had total freedom to do stuff, inside information security, when you're starting to build your own tools and grab and cross-link and take and plug things together, and it's like a great big Lego set. You know, you got a Lego and a Marcano set, and you put them together, and you can just do so many powerful things. And if you wait around long enough, there'll be another tool. So you don't have to get too caught up in becoming an expert on one particular tool. You just have to have a general understanding and the ability to get up to speed enough so you can start to use it and if it's a good tool, you can use it more and more your expertise in that area increases. but if you don't need it, you haven't invested a lot of time in it but that's one of the most fascinating things. the creativity, my favorite thing about penetration testing is taking all the limited findings you know the stuff that doesn't look too scary or it's like oh that's just a limited risk level. that's not a big deal What I like to do Is take those and link them together and then create a critical. And it's one of those things to get a team to go, well, we don't have to fix it because it's limited risk level. And we go, well, yeah, but if I take this and I take that and I do this with that and that with this and I do this with that over there, and these are all very limited risk levels, but I can do this and that's not limited, that's critical. I can take control of the entire system. So it's a fascinating, fascinating area one thing I want to get across is I often find myself tinkering and I think I'm playing around with systems and doing things with tools and stuff when I should be doing something else. I feel like, Oh, I'm, I got to get back to the standard methodology. And then like a couple of weeks later, I'll come across something. It'll be related to the service that I was tinkering with a couple of weeks before. And I'll go, Hey, when I was playing with that, there's a certain thing you can do. I wonder if they know that I did it. And I'm like, Oh, they don't. And boom. I'm in. So it's one of those areas where you can continuously learn and continuously play around and tinker with stuff. And you're not really limited. You know how I said you have to be done in two weeks or four weeks. But as long as I'm finding stuff, then I just say, I'm still finding stuff. And my reports reflect that. Then it goes on and on and on and on. So sometimes during serious engagement, a four-week endeavor might turn into like a six or seven-week-long thing. But then it's the big thing. And that usually results in high-level meetings where you're going like, how come they're coming up with all these findings? And how come we didn't find them before? And it's like, well, you haven't taken this and that and put them together before.